David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away, black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> I want to assure you, I did not kill my I'm journalist Martin Van Bainen, and this is the second episode of Black Hands, a podcast series about the Bain family murders. On June the 20th, 1994, five members of the Bain family were shot in their home in Dunedin. Only the father, Robin Bain, who appeared to have shot the family and then himself, or his son David, the only survivor, could have been responsible. David was convicted of the murders in 1995, but acquitted after a second trial in 2009. In the last episode, we went to the scene of the crime and the various clues it provided to identifying the killer. But to get to grips with the Bain case, you need to know a little about the Bain family. In this episode, we'll look at why the Bain family was unusual and how that resulted and peculiarities that lie at the heart of this bizarre case. David's father, Robin Irving Bain, was already an experienced teacher when he married Margaret Arawa Cullen in August 1969 in the first church in central Dunedin. He was 33, she was 25. The couple came from strong Presbyterian families in which they were each the oldest of four children. They met through church after Robin came to Dunedin from Northland, where he had taught in small Māori schools. Margaret was also teaching, and outside work, they led a youth group at the Anderson's Bay Presbyterian Church. They were a cheerful, good-natured and good-looking couple, even if they were quite different personalities. Margaret was rather loud and extroverted, while Robin was serious and quiet. On the 27th of March 1972, their first child was born in Dunedin. They named him David Cullen Bain. Robin was interested in missionary work and had already done a stint in Papua New Guinea before his marriage. He was keen to return, and in January 1974, the family left Dunedin to work for the Presbyterian Church in Gorlam, a small town near Rabul on the island of New Britain. The crescent-shaped island to the east of the Papuan mainland has diverse tribes, traditions and languages. A local tribe called the Binings is famous for its work ethic and ritual firewalking. Robin was deputy principal of the Gorlam Teachers College, where his responsibilities ranged from the college timetable to arranging supplies for the boarding houses. The work was demanding and friends remember him being flat out all the time. Margaret, who gave birth to Arawa Mary on June the 26th, 1974, has studied anthropology at university and soon immersed herself in the local culture, beliefs and traditional healing practices, sometimes to the detriment of her other duties. The house was dirty and unhygienic. On March the 19th, 1976, Laniette Margaret was born. About three years later, the Baines moved to the PNG capital, Port Moresby, where Robin took up a post as a senior lecturer at the government-run Barocco Teachers College, a school providing mainly refresher courses. 
the college was situated in a fenced compound, which also included staff housing and other facilities. Entry to the compound was controlled by security guards. The Baines' domestic life carried on much as it had in Gorlam. They were regarded somewhat as hippies, unconventional, friendly and disorganised. Stephen was born on New Year's Day 1980. For long periods, Margaret schooled the children herself with varying degrees of success. David enrolled at an international high school when he was about 11, but he was bullied and Margaret removed him from the school. The deputy principal of the school, Diane Corare, told author James McNeish, whose book The Mask of Sanity deals at length with the Bain family's long spell in PNG, that David was a solitary boy. She told McNeish the following, which is read by an actor. He wasn't competitive. His parents didn't believe in that. He was the sort others pick on, and the sort of boy things keep happening to. You know the sort. Others noticed his closeness to his mother, and saw him as isolated and awkward. The whole family was active in musical and dramatic circles, and the children had roles in various productions. Robin formed two bluegrass bands, had a private study project, and was also helping refugees from Irian Jawa by fundraising and sending children's books to the camps. Davida Pockroy, a psychologist and educational training consultant who was friendly with a member of Robin's band, got to know the Bain family about a year before they left PNG. Their government house was so dirty and cluttered, she never went back after her first visit. In a statement to the police, and in a conversation with me, she said, and this again is an actor's voice, You've never seen anything like it. They let their children run around naked, which was frowned on by the local people. It was regarded as absolutely unacceptable. I've never seen so much chaos. Everything was mixed up. Old food, dirty underpants, fat dripping down the kitchen walls. Margaret was worried about the children and asked me to help. I agreed to interview each family member and to give Margaret a recommendation about what sort of therapist the family might need. Margaret was very overweight and desperate to restart her sex life with Robin. Whenever she spoke, she had multiple motives. She put Robin down and was worried the children were beginning to have their own thoughts about things, that they would no longer accept her control and ideas. She didn't really listen. She just talked non-stop, a continuous stream of words. It was like watching a video of a pathological dysfunction at a level I've never experienced. Margaret was the dangerous person who wanted to get inside their minds and control everything that everybody did all the time. Arawa seemed so relieved to be able to talk and express herself. She just wanted to go to school and be normal. And David, as the eldest, might have borne the brunt of his mother's madness. Pockroy says Robin was regarded as a competent lecturer, but believes he was also suffering from a similar pathology to Margaret, although his problems were not as overt. They had this belief that the outside world was full of evil and they were bringing up their children in a wonderful way and protected from outside influences. When I talked to David, he was cooperative, but guarded in what he said. He was the only one that talked about his father with respect and caring. 
He had a good relationship with his father. Robin I interviewed later. He was cooperative. He didn't say anything that would rock the boat. He was interested in solving any problem with the kids. I perceived his whole role within the family was an act. He was like a shell, no emotion. Margaret dominated him, always. When she heard about the shootings, she thought Robin might have snapped after years of powerlessness and spared the one child who hadn't been corrupted by Margaret. After her interviews, Pockroy concluded the family was in serious trouble and thought their problems were beyond a single therapist. She recommended they seek help from a whole team of counsellors on returning to Dunedin. We see then that the Bain family culture was partly formed in Papua New Guinea, but Margaret and Robin would have been an unusual couple wherever they ended up. Their time in PNG, however, fueled their eccentricities without the usual societal and family oversight. We are now going to look at their return to Dunedin, where they had a large, run-down property in every street, and where, after their elevated status in Port Moresby, life would be very different. With Margaret and Robin alert to worsening crime in Port Moresby, the need to boost Robin's pension fund and secondary education for the children, the Baines returned to Dunedin in late 1988. The transition from the expat compound lifestyle of Port Moresby to Dunedin was fraught and disappointing. The house at Every Street was in a sorry state and the children initially struggled at school. Robin had to resign himself to relieving teaching positions and periods of not working. Margaret felt badly treated and was aggrieved by the lack of support from the church. Early in 1990, Margaret moved into a caravan at the back of the Every Street house. She kept a diary, and here an actor reads excerpts from it. Over the week, I've come to realise that this caravan is my temple to God, the sacred ground, that there is no place for me inside where it's not clear. Was terribly upset all day as I realised what I'd given up. Spent all day meditating and crying, just never seemed to stop. Robin came, but not clear, and obviously had to be bawled at over and over. Talked to David about his feelings with me out here. He saw how he was centred on self, but revealed confusion, worry for family. The only real inadequacy I have is in not catering to my needs. Another quiet, gentle day looking after me. Enjoying her independence, but not the isolation and cold, Margaret didn't last long in the Spartan caravan. After about six months, Robin was sleeping in the caravan and Margaret was back in the house. In her diary, amidst entries about her domestic pursuits, she was an almost obsessive fruit bottler. Margaret described Robin and others as the sons of Belial, a biblical reference to the son of darkness. In her diary, she shortened Belial to Bell. But Bell was not confined to Robin. Sometimes she returned home to find it full of Bell. And at a party at her sister Jan's house, the food was contaminated by Bell. David's physical problems were examples of Bell in him, and sometimes he was the son of Belial himself. She called family meetings to advance the family's spirituality. They often disappointed her. An entry from March 1990, read by an actor, says... Anger very strong. Called a meeting. 
lack of motivation or wrong motivation, asked who had understood a new step, D only. Paul Morris, head of religious studies at Victoria University, was asked by McNeish to look at all the diaries. I talked to him about the diaries, and these are his summarised thoughts as read by an actor. She was a very committed Christian of a very enthusiastic sort, and part of her faith as manifested in the diaries was an ongoing concern with the demonic. She worried about the devil in her family and the devil leading people to behave in particular ways. He was failing to do all sorts of things he should be doing. My impression was they were deeply estranged. There was a kind of distance feel about the way she wrote about all of them. Lots of negativity. What you get is a sort of toxic family environment. Seeing the devil being active on a daily basis in your own household can't be conducive to family life. She's concerned for all the kids. She was estranged from the family to the extent of seeing an utterly alien force there. I get the sense she wasn't there for them. My impression at the time was a terribly unhealthy psychological environment, and she was progressively getting worse. This unseen parallel world was more and more dominant. It wasn't just a bit weird, it was an all-consuming weirdness. The diaries rank family members according to the amount of bell in them. David was usually top that is, the least Belial, and Robin was always at the bottom. Margaret continued her interest in alternative medicine and wrote in her diary of mixing up a brew of urine and phlegm to treat her colds. She practised self-hypnosis and her diary records David wanting to use self-hypnosis for his running. Given their odd family and status as outsiders, the Bain children were never going to find life in Dunedin easy but nothing obvious suggested they were vulnerable to the terrible end that would overcome them. Of the children, David and Laniette, who could hardly read or write, probably struggled the most in their new life in Dunedin. While Arawa was confident and assured and determined not to seem odd, David, who started in sixth form, was teased and spent a lot of time alone. However, by the seventh form, he was part of a group which consisted of three or four of the brighter boys in the class and he was also busy in various choirs and school productions. Caroline White, now a Dunedin Health Administrator, moved in the same circles as David and was his date to the Bayfield High 7th Form Formal. They were both on the outer, and Caroline, who dearly wanted to go to the ball, suggested to David they go just as friends. Before the ball, they went ice skating, and then the phone call started. Caroline told me about the calls and how the relationship progressed. He started ringing me every day after school, after that, and um, just wanting to talk and talk and talk and talk, <laughs> and for hours, really? and it was every day. And I said to him, um, look, I, you know, I, this wasn't what it was about. I just feel like it's too much. You need to back off a wee bit, you know. With him, it was all or nothing. He just didn't have any idea on how to be somebody's friend. Either had to be all in and controlling everything, like you know where we went, what we did, yeah. talking to me all the time. I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody else, you know. Even getting a fit and that sort of stuff. Yeah, he had to, it was all everything, or mm. head back right off and didn't talk to me again. Yeah. Um, and I found I found him unbearably weird and creepy as time went on. Arawa's friend, Greer Taylor, spent time with the Bain family and also found them strange. She thought of David as a tall, gangly geek, 
but admitted he impressed her when he performed on stage. She thought he was quirky and funny, but that changed in the weeks before the murders when her boyfriend, who had been David's classmate, warned her David had, in their last year of school, told him about his rape fantasy. In a police statement in 2007, now read by an actor, she said, Knowing that about David disgusted me. He made my skin crawl. I didn't want David anywhere near me. Friends of Arawa and Laniat could see not all was well with the Bain family. Charlene Sterling got to know the Bain family through drama productions and was at Teachers College with Arawa, who told her Margaret wouldn't talk to her for weeks if Arawa had upset her. Arawa was hurt by Margaret's practice of staying in bed, especially when she did it on Christmas Day, Sterling says. Kirsten Kosh was best friends with Arawa until their seventh form year when they drifted apart. They spent time at each other's houses and Kirsten thought Robin was quiet and gentle while Margaret was loud, verbose and bossy. An actor reads from Kosh's comments in her police statement. She didn't seem happy either. She spent a lot of time lying in bed. That seemed to last for a long time. She didn't really do any chores. In contrast, the children had lists of jobs. They were very hard chores and the kids didn't like doing them. The house always had stacks of dishes, the preserved fruit was going off and things like that. The parents didn't seem to do any of the chores. It was always up to the kids to keep the house going. David in particular seemed to have a ridiculous amount of chores to do. In the school holidays they had a list of chores that would be a full eight hours worth. Other girls at school who were in our year didn't like to stay at the Bain house. That was in part because it was so unclean and untidy. Some of the girls said they felt unsafe there. I didn't really like to stay there. I didn't feel safe at the Bain house. I was scared of David. He had a manic energy. He was intense and quite morally uptight. Mark Buckley, who felt sorry for the geeky David and became friends with him at Bayfield High School, recounted another odd incident concerning David. He often went to the Bain house and found them a nice, open, loving family. He wasn't sure of the date, probably 1990 when both were in their last year at school, but one night, when he was staying at the Bain house, David had talked about a girl across the road, whom he would see out running in the mornings. Before David's trial in 2009, a hearing was held into whether Buckley's evidence could be used. Here an actor reads from his evidence at the hearing. He really liked her and was excited when he got to speak with her on occasion. He said if he really wanted to, he could rape her without getting caught. He could get away with it by using his paper round as an alibi. He explained that he could drop off some papers to people's addresses at an earlier time than usual. That would free up the time, then after he would complete his round by delivering the papers to the people who would normally see him at normal times. After explaining this to me, he pulled out a book from down beside the bed. It was like a text or notebook. David read from the book, giving certain times he would see people on his run. David rejected Buckley's story as a fabrication. Soon after leaving school, David met Barbara Chisholm through Scouts. She was in her late 20s, and they began running together. Chisholm made a statement to the police soon after the murders, and an actor now reads from it. I think David wanted a relationship with me, I started going to David's house quite a lot and got to meet his family. His family and their relationship was very strange. Even then, I was concerned about David's well-being. I felt he was like a bomb waiting to explode. 
Chisholm noted everything seemed to revolve around Margaret. David's life appeared very structured. David seemed under the control of his mother. When he was unemployed, he got extra chores to do around the house. She ended the friendship about the end of 1993 because... I felt he wanted more than I wanted to give. I felt he treated me like a girlfriend come mother. In some ways, Margaret was a social, friendly person. So let's see how she took to Dunedin and Dunedin to her. Margaret found it hard to fit in and make friends, and her reputation as being a bit mad was soon around the neighbourhood. Wayne and Billy Marsh lived next door, and Arawa would often babysit for the family. Billy Marsh told David's second trial. Robin, easy to deal with, a lovely man, gentle, polite, calm man, um, uh, very reasonable, you know, um, Margaret, Margaret, I found flaky. Um, she was highly opinionated. If you had a conversation, Margaret did all the talking, you did the listening. I doubt if you'd ever, if she had an idea, it would be very difficult to persuade her from that idea. Um, yeah, very strong-minded person and some very unusual ideas. She told me that she went to bed for six weeks, just decided that she just went to bed. I mean, she was quite happy, you know, she was quite cheerful telling me about it. It wasn't depression or anything. It was just, she just decided to go to bed for six weeks and the family just had to make do around her. Margaret enjoyed going around garage sales and second-hand shops, bringing back carloads of items to fill an already over-cluttered house. Robin was also a hoarder, always had been, and soon both the inside and outside of the house was sporting a vast collection of furniture, curios, car parts and odds and ends. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. In August 1990, Robin took a position as a relieving principal of the tiny 30-pupil Tyree Beach Primary School, about an hour's drive from Every Street. The school served a community of farmers, fishing families and poor beneficiary households, the latter being attracted by the cheap housing the area offered. The post was a major step down for Robin, but it was a job. Robin divided his week between Tyree and home, he spent the weekend at home and on Monday would go to work and return home just for the night so he could go to his Royal Dunedin Male Choir practice. David also sang in the choir. Robin overnighted at the school from Tuesday to Thursday. The schoolhouse that came with the job was not available until a few months before his death, so he slept in his old comma van on the school grounds using the school staff room and facilities. When someone objected to the old van on school grounds, 
he simply moved the comma to a roadside spot near the school. Robin would have been worried about Margaret, and he sought help from someone who knew the family very well. Barbara Short, a devout Presbyterian, got to know the family in Gorlam, where she was the deputy principal of a local school. She became firm friends with Margaret and also got on well with Robin. When the Baines returned to New Zealand in 1988, they stayed with her in Sydney, and she visited the family in Dunedin in January 1991. She told David's second trial about the various visits. We apologise for the audio quality. Margaret had become involved with uh, a lot of things like, um, you could call them new age things. And she had some very strange beliefs, which uh, some people would just say she was slightly mental. She had problems uh, with all of these things, and Robin knew about it, and he wanted me to come over to help her. He felt I was one person who could help Margaret. She told me about her belief in having previous lives, and I think I was closely related to her. Maybe I was her mother or something. Margaret was, in her previous lives, felt she was related to Churchill and uh, was related to the emperors in Egypt. So she told me all about these beliefs, which I felt very concerned about. Overall, how would you describe your relationship at that time? Well, it was a, a situation where there was spiritual warfare going on between the two of them. Robin was praying for Margaret to change. <coughs> Margaret was praying for Robin to change. Now, how did, um, how did Margaret get on with the children, to your observation? Well, when I was there, I felt sorry for the children because she was very bossy and I have a feeling that um, the children all handled her as best they could. There was still a lot of love in the family, but I know that the children came to understand about Margaret's strange beliefs. I could call it a little madness. And they came, David told me later, that they avoided going home to keep away from it. When they went shopping, Margaret would take out her keyring or her necklace and swing it before making decisions. Margaret told Short she wanted the marriage to end, but Robin did not. With the marriage apparently in dire trouble, Margaret was devoting her energies to a new house, which was to be built at every street once the existing house was demolished. In late 1992, her diary records God telling her she must do the plans herself, with the house created and facilitated by God. An actor reads from the diary. Being is what is required of each of us, not doing or achieving. The house is necessary to allow us to be as God intended us to be. In it, we will each discover the freedom necessary. God was making it all possible because she, David and Arawa had earned it. The plans and dreams certainly involved David, who according to Margaret's diary, was to spend 1993 building while Arawa would have the year to concentrate on her studies. Margaret set up a design office in Narnia's bedroom and constructed a makeshift drawing board on a desk. It seems the house was to be a sanctuary where the family and sometimes strangers 
could retreat from the pressures of modern life behind a wall of green, just like in PNG. Each of the children would have one of the six bedrooms in the new double-storey edifice, and it appeared David and his mother would have the main bedrooms, separated by a joint bathroom. Robin worried about the expense of the project, although, as David told several people, his father was not wanted by the family and had no part in planning the new house. Despite not having much to say about the new house, according to David anyway, and in much of family life, Robin remained the family's sole breadwinner. His salary went into a joint savings account. Margaret withdrew cash as needed, and the couple also operated a joint visa account. Robin was earning about $1,100 a fortnight, and each month, before the 20th or the 22nd, they religiously cleared the visa bill so it wouldn't incur interest. The family led a very frugal life, but had considerable asset backing. The couple owned two other plots of land, one near Whangarei and another block in Queensland. They also had money invested with an accountant and about $50,000 in an overseas bank account. Margaret does not appear to have costed her dream house, but a modest new dwelling was within the family's means. But if any new house was to be built, it could only be done if Robin and Margaret stayed together. David certainly wasn't contributing much to the household finances. He had his paper round job and went on the unemployment benefit from the beginning of 1992, after a disastrous first year at university, doing mainly science papers for a zoology degree. We now turn to Laniette. She has a crucial place in the Bain story, because according to David's defence, she is the one who tipped Robin over the edge with her claims of incest. Laniette left home and school in the last three months of 1993 and went to stay in a flat in Russell Street. She told friends she had no income because her parents would not sign the forms to allow her to go on a welfare benefit. She began working as a freelance escort using a phone provided by an acquaintance called Dean Cottle. Heavy cannabis use was part of her lifestyle and it appears the relationship with Cottle was not healthy. This is Laniette's flatmate at David's second trial. As far as you're aware, she was a freelance escort, is that right? That's correct. Now, you've spoken about Dean Cottle. And you've told us that you understood, well, that Laniette told you, I think, that Dean Cottle was blackmailing him. Yes. And that was something that Laniette told you. Yes. And that she had to go and have sex with him at least once a week as, as a result. From memory, yes. Because... Dean Cottle threatened to tell Laniette's mother and father about the prostitution. Yes. And Laniette, as I understand it, was very scared that this was this may happen. Yes. And did Laniette report to you that Dean Cottle was making her do um, horrible and graphic things? Yes. Would Laniette get 
quite wasted on marijuana before she'd go and see him. Yes, she did. It's, it's correct, isn't it, that Laniette craved affection? Uh, yes. And what do you mean by her craving affection? Friendship. I need to know that someone cared. We'll come back to Cottle, who others have called Laniette's pimp later. But even before Russell Street, Laniette had an unusual habit of sharing intimacies with strangers. Bayfield High School physical education teacher Paul Hewson was surprised how open she was. He told David's second trial... The first thing she told me was that she'd had a child um, and, and when she'd been in Papua New Guinea... Um, she said she'd been raped over there and she said the child was, was black. She speci- specified that dark skin was black. Um, but later on, I mean, I was pu- puzzled by this because the story changed that she'd had an abortion. It was almost as if she'd forgotten she'd already told me that she'd had a child. Um, I didn't know what to make of it, really. I mean, she would have had to have been quite young, quite obviously, just doing a little bit of maths. Um, but, I mean, you know, it was biologically and theoretically possible for it to have happened. She also said, which is a little bit more disturbing, um, was that she attempted to kill herself by slashing her wrists. And she said that Arrow, her older sister, had um, saved her and by coming in and obviously preventing the bleeding. But I do recall one time in the weights room when she was sort of doing a little bit of um, training herself, just a little bit, I observed the skin on her wrists and couldn't see any sign of any scarring or um, any visible disturbance to the skin. And I, I got the feeling that she sort of, I mean, women are quite perceptive, they can see when guys are sort of staring quite intently at, at them, and she never mentioned the attempt again. She didn't specify when it was either, she just said that she tried to kill herself. So, Friends saw Laniat appear to deteriorate during 1993. Adele not her real name, met the family through drama productions. Here she is at David's second trial. When you met up with Laniette during 1993, um, were there any discussions about the family? About David there was. Um, she did mention that I asked her about her father and her mother and Arawa and Stephen and, as well as David um, and she spoke warmly about them. Uh, but in regards to David, uh, her attitude was very strange. What did she speak to you about about David? Uh, she often referred to him as my David. David and I had had a sort of minor relationship. Uh, she referred back to that because I cut off contact and said that I had hurt him and indicated therefore that I had hurt her that you've hurt my David. She would just keep referring to my David all the time, which I thought was quite strange. Did she say anything about um, her, Laniette's, relationship with other men? Uh, She said that David was very jealous of her relationships. Uh, When was the last time you saw Laniette before her death? I think it was about five to six months prior to her passing. I met her down the street in Dunedin, and we went in for a cup of coffee and to catch up and she was visibly very um, I suppose you'd say agitated and uh, upset 
um, and she just didn't seem at all like herself. She seemed very worried. Um, and uh, just very different. Uh, she mentioned David again and again and again during that conversation. Uh, she was scared of upsetting him and uh, worried about what he might think of different things she was doing. It just seemed to be obsessive, everything related back to him. As already mentioned, David remained home on the dole, helping his mother from the beginning of 1991. Laniat, who had been battling her mother for some time, left home late in 1993. Robin had been principal of the Tyree Beach School since late 1990 and was apparently doing a good job with parents and fellow staff regarding him highly. His disorganisation and avoidance of paperwork would take its toll later, but fellow teacher Darlene Thompson was impressed with his hard work and caring attitude. She told David's second trial in 2009. Well, I thought he was a lovely man. Um, different. He, we both had different ways of teaching. He, um, he was very... Um, oh, he made the most of every moment, let's say. So in the summer, if it was a fine day, um, we might... We, we, Tyra Beach School's right on the beach. We would cross the paddock and go to the beach because, you know, Robin thought you can learn as well outside as you can inside. Um, he, you know, he, he always made sure that the kids, even though they were isolated, got the best of everything. So um, we did an awful lot of telephone conferencing with a school called Allenton School. Computers. Um, I mean, back then it was quite innovative to have computers, um, especially in the junior class. I taught the junior class, he taught the senior class. And in the junior class, he introduced three computers into the classroom, and there were 11 children in my class. It was very innovative. Um, and, uh, yeah, he taught... We sort of all learned together and had the junior children writing their names on computers when they were five years old, and that was just not heard of here. Yeah. You said there were some challenges uh, in the children who were part of the classes. How did he deal with those uh, <coughs> situations? Um, how did he, he if you like, keep the children under control? Well, I think he was a very loving man, and I think... We, we all realised a lot of them came from dysfunctional families, or perhaps that's a bit harsh, but perhaps not your typical mum, dad and two kid families. And he just showed them a lot of respect, a lot of love. I mean, I never once heard him raise his voice. And if you can picture a two-teacher school, the door between our classes was never shut, ever. So, yeah, I, I never heard it. Despite the inevitable tensions caused by the standoff with his wife, Robin still played an important part in the family and was not exiled altogether. Robin talked proudly of his children to his school colleagues and went to all their productions. It's clear that in his parents' marital battle, David sided very much with his mother. He was fully on board with her ambitious plans for the new retreat and appeared to have usurped his father's role as head of the household. Robin had got Laniette, but he, Arawa and Stephen were with Margaret, he would later say. David's singing and dramatic pursuits continued 
and he was regarded by friends and acquaintances at the Dunedin Opera Company as a talented performer and a friendly and considerate young man. He was often the butt of practical jokes, but he took it all in good stead. He started formal singing lessons in 1992. Patricia Napier, a pharmacist, first met David at the end of 1992 when she was a volunteer with the Dunedin Opera Company. How did you find him in those, that early time when you began to get to know him? When I first met him, um, he was actually a quite sort of shy um, person to a degree, but he got on really well with everybody and the people knew each other, so they all got to spend time together, they all got to um, make silly comments at each other. There was a lot of laughter, a lot of joking, a lot of really, really strange and silly things would go on backstage and hopefully it all went right at the front of the stage when it really counted. Yes. And as a sense of humour, did he have one? Or? Yes, he has a very good sense of humour, and almost all of the cast um, spent a lot of time teasing each other, laughing with each other. They would tell jokes. They would actually have pra- play practical jokes on each other. It was, um, yeah, it, was a, it was a lot of fun to be backstage. It was stressful to be out on stage, but it was a lot of fun backstage, and I think that was a way of relieving that. Regarding assisting each other and caring for anyone, what was David like in that regard? Um, he was actually really helpful, and he was always um, he was he was always there. And they, the guys would all help each other. Um, he helped me do the ironing at one stage. <laughs> what uh, backstage? Backstage, I had arrived early. I had to get some stuff done, and David helped with the ironing. Despite being offered a job by his uncle. David remained at home throughout 1992 and 1993, mainly helping Margaret in the garden and doing some of the housework. He kept up his running and also kept fit doing his paper round. Robin bore the family tensions and living circumstances stoically. It appears he confided in no one. Margaret's diaries of 1993 show a woman perpetually angry with her husband, children and even with David who was generally rated as the least demon-influenced. She sees the standard of the food and the lack of cleanliness as a sign of selfishness and lack of care for her. She wrote of telling David, I need none of them, but they needed me. At times, she appeared to resolve her conflicts. I do feel free of Robin, of the need to build the house, to keep the family together, to keep 65 every street. On March 15, 1993, she wrote, Present purpose equals freedom. Three days in bed and not drink offered, yet much interruption and question asking. It seems I remain here until I find full freedom within myself, claim it from the family and feel the fullness of it. It's clear that by the end of 1993, tensions within the Bain family were worsening. The next episode will deal with the period leading up to the shootings when at least one member of the family reached breaking point, sparking a terrible act. I'm Martin Van Bainen. I look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff in Tandem Studios production. Written and presented by Martin Van Bainen. Audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson. And produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman.